Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 15. As I said uh, a while back, as uh, my intentions was were just to uh, spend a week in the Psalm, and then as, as I dug through it, it just kept revealing more and more of the things that we needed to chew on, and it has turned into a, a longer project. Uh, hopefully, you find it uh, valuable in the process of living these things out, of living out the Christian life, and what does the Christian look like? What are the ethics, in particular, of the believer? Uh, do they differentiate us from the rest of the world, or do we look like the rest of the world except on Sunday when we go to church? Okay. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I'll read Psalm 15. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit upon us so that we may understand. And not just the words, Lord, but what it is you really mean and what it is you're calling us to do. What is, what is, is that you have given us the power to do and to achieve and how we are to live because of the grace of Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. So Psalm 15 is the Psalm of David. O Lord, who may abide in thy tent, who may dwell on thy holy hill? That's the question that is raised here, and then the rest of the psalm is the answer. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against a friend. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. <clears throat> In the past, we've looked and determined what ethics are not. They're not feelings, they're not following the law, they're not just whatever society says is acceptable, it's not simply being religious, but we determine that Christian ethics in particular, Christian ethics are the law of God exercised in holy living through a changed heart. Somebody whose heart is changed by the grace of Jesus Christ lives differently. They just live differently than the world around them. Christian ethics are rooted in what God says is right, and then they're lived out in the context of every believer. It used to be that uh, in the old days, if you really wanted to be holy, you picked up your stuff and you went out into the desert or you separated yourself from the rest of society. Uh, but as we dig into Scripture, especially the Reformers and what they understood as spirituality, it was it was really taking what you believe and how you have been changed and living it in the midst of the world. So living it in your vocation, living it in your neighborhood, not separating yourself from society, but taking that faith and impacting society with it. Remember, the Christian ethics do not change. God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his attitude. This is what he says. This is what he says is right. This is what he says is wrong. He has said it for all time. That is how we are to live. And Psalm 15 is not a roadmap on how to get righteous with God. Psalm 15 is how the righteous live. Okay? The person who has been saved 
lives out this way. It is a, we get a description of a man of integrity and a prescription on how to live once your life has been changed. So the first evidence we looked at was an individual's character. His walk is blameless and he does what is righteous. That's an individual's character. He keeps all the commandments of the Lord or strives to keep all the commandments of the Lord. He doesn't vacillate. He is the same today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day. He doesn't, you don't find a different person on Saturday that you find on Sunday. He actively engages in doing what is righteous. What you do to the least of these, Jesus said, you do unto me. James said, what good is it if you have faith and no works? I have, let me show, let me show you my works, okay? But those are works that flow from a changed heart. He speaks the truth in his heart, and David is very concerned about the inner part of our being, the inner part of our hearts, not just the externals. He's not that concerned about just looking good. He wants you to be changed within. It speaks, speaks from a righteous heart, a righteous heart. It, the, the man whose life has been changed does what is righteous. It's not that he thinks about what is righteous and then meditates upon what is righteous and then discusses what is righteous, and then prays about whether he should do it or not. He sees in the word what is righteous, and he doesn't, because God has said it. The second indicator was our conversations. The man of God speaks the truth. The man who has the right ethical aspect speaks the truth in all things. He is a trustworthy person. He opens his mouth. You can believe what he says. He doesn't have to clarify it and says, well, let me tell you the truth, or let me be honest with you, or let me be frank with you. He says, this and that is it. Also, the person who is ethical does not listen to slander, does not listen to gossip. When he hears those things, he either speaks against them or leaves, depending upon the situation, especially of another believer. So if you want to have fellowship with God, you have to mind your tongue. You have to mind what you say. You have to mind what you listen to as well. Listen to as well. So this brings us to our third indicator today. And the third indicator of the ethical man, the man who may ascend the holy hill of God, is his companions. You'll notice these are all C's. I usually don't do C's. Or I usually don't do the same letter for everything. I know some people do that because it's Cool. Uh, it's, it's just worked out this way. Okay, the words all worked out that way. Um, so your companions, who are your role models? Now think about that for a moment. When you were young, you wanted to grow up and be like somebody. Okay, who was that person you wanted to be like? Maybe you still have somebody that you're striving to be like today. Or if you look at society and say, oh, yeah, man, I'm kind of envious of them. Not, not totally in a bad way, but just they, they have things or uh, they have a life or something like that that I, I really think is, is something to emulate. Well, who are your heroes today? Well, unfortunately, studies of, of uh, younger populations, younger, I hate to say this, under 40 Okay, that's young, that's awful, okay? Uh, it turns out that the heroes of those people in the 21st century really are, are the rich and the powerful and the good-looking and the sports figure, and, and, and this, this is a category that befuddles me. Those who are famous for being famous, okay? Those who are famous for being famous. 
Whatever happened to making heroes out of people who did great things, people who strived for, people who sacrificed? I want you to go back with me for a little bit. Go back to 9-11. On 9-11, 343 firefighters, 60 police officers, and eight paramedics ran into a building that was falling apart. Why? To save others. To save others. They had a disregard for their own safety. And that selfless service, says this author, Todd Lindbergh, that willingness to put their own lives on the line for complete strangers is precisely the quality that defines a hero. A hero overcomes the continual fear of a violent death and is willing to embrace his fate in accordance with an inner sense of greatness or exceptional virtue. Now, the model hero from ancient times was the conquering warrior. You have uh, Achilles, who's a great warrior, kills lots of people, okay? And, and he was a hero to be held up. But over the centuries, what, what Lindbergh is talking about, the, the, the slaying hero has gradually fallen out of favor. Our idea of a hero has morphed instead to a courageous soul, one no less afraid of death, but focused upon saving life rather than taking life. And Lindbergh uses the history of the Congressional Medal of Honor to demonstrate this evolution of heroism. He reviewed the award from the creation back in the, in the Civil War time to the present and concluded that the percentages of Congressional Medal of Honors, uh, how they were distributed, went more and more to those who saved life rather than those who took life. The military now designates its highest heroes not on the basis of their infliction of violent death, but on those who save lives. Now this came to me this week, in fact this came to me this weekend, from a dear friend of mine. I'm going to try to get through it. Mac McCarty is a a man that uh, was a uh, a lieutenant in Vietnam, and he was a platoon leader, and he was uh, one of the guys that was instrumental in getting us out of the PCUSA. He was on the team that wrote the book with me, and uh, he's a, lawyer, uh, a retired JAG officer and lawyer up in the Philadelphia area. His church came into the Presbytery the same day that ours did the first, and, and it was all. He's got this great history. Well, he writes about an individual named Jimmy Wayne Phipps who he knew, and, and from Vietnam, being in the battle. And he says, 48 years ago today, in the Arizona Territory, that's what he called the area that he was patrolling, he said, we found a dud 175-millimeter artillery round lying next to the trail. And this would have been a deadly booby trap and needed to be destroyed. Max says, I didn't have an engineer with me, and we had used all our C4 to blow up a couple of duds earlier. And I reported our findings to the skipper and marked the location. When he got back to his forward operating base, who should he see but Jimmy Phipps, the engineer with whom I'd had the spider hole adventure in February. That would be one of those places where you go down into the caves, I assume, and, and, and look for the enemy. Shortly before we left the, the the operating place for the Arizona Territory, he had returned to his own unit, Company B, 1st Engineer Battalion. He was an engineer. He dealt with those booby traps. 
Well, I briefed the skipper who was there planning in the afternoon patrol, and he joined in our conversations and reworked his patrol route to take him to the dub, the dud round, and Phipps began to prepare the charges that he would use on the dud. About 1530, my radio operator said, Lieutenant, Charlie One has some casualties. We learned, excuse me, we learned later that they had found a, a, a 500 pound bomb in addition to the 175 millimeter round, and Phipps destroyed the bomb, but as he was putting a charge on the 175, he found that it was booby-trapped with a grenade. Shouting a warning to those two who were next to him, he leapt on the grenade. He was 18. So this is the citation for the Congressional Medal of Honor that he won. <clears throat> While serving as a combat engineer with Company B, in May of 1969, in connection with combat operations against the enemy, Private First Class Phipps was a member of a two-man combat engineer demolition team assigned to locate and destroy enemy artillery ordnance and concealing firing devices. After he expended all of his explosives and blasting caps, Private Phipps discovered a 175-millimeter high-explosive artillery, artillery round in a rice paddy. Suspecting that the enemy had attached the artillery round to a secondary explosive, he warned the other Marines in the area to move to covered positions and prepared to destroy the round. As he was attaching the hand grenade to a stake beside the, military, beside the artillery round, the fuse of the enemy's secondary explosive device ignited. Realizing that his assistant and platoon commander were both within a few meters of him and that the imminent explosion would kill all three, Private Phipps grasped the hand grenade to his chest and covered the explosion with his body. I, I read that because that's a hero. That is somebody that Mac knew, somebody that he cared about and loved. And that's a man who gave his life for his friends. And Jesus says what? There's no greater love than a man give up his life for his friends. That's a hero. That is somebody that we should emulate. Those are the kind of people that we should want to be around, those who are willing to sacrifice and do these things. And that's what Scripture says. Who are your role models? Who are the people that you hold up? And, and, and the role models in this next age group that I'm going to tell you are a far cry from this individual, an 18-year-old private in wartime. In a survey of millennials, 40% of that age group chose Mark Zuckerberg as their hero, the guy who found Facebook, okay? As the man they looked up to the most, he was their hero. What's the, what's the reason? Well, they say how his company, he's a role model for how companies should be run in the future and how social responsibility can make everybody a happier human being. Yeah, it's not so bad that he's got eight gazillion dollars too, okay? Now, uh, Sometimes it's okay to look beyond the dollar to what they believe is the greater good. Now, Mark Zuckerberg also uh, gave the commencement address at Harvard, and he argued for a universal income for everyone. A universal income. That list of heroes also included Marisa Mayer, Yahoo, Bill Gates, Microsoft, Howard Schultz, Starbucks, Richard Branson, Virgin Airlines, Jeff Bezos, Amazon, Steve Jobs, Apple, Steve Wynn, Wynn Resorts, John Carmack, ID Software, and Matt Cutts from Google. What, did, what great heroic things have these men and women done? Well, they made a lot of money. Made a lot of money. Now, if we divide the heroes 
between the men and the women of that age group, we find most men's list will include, to those we have already listed, people like their mothers and the fathers and mentors and sponsors and professors and teachers and brothers and coaches. Pastor didn't make the list. As a, as a, as a aside. The women's list had these people on it. Amy Poehler, Beyonce Knowles, Ellen DeGeneres, Emma Watson, Hillary Clinton, and Sarah Blakely. Does anybody know what Sarah Blakely's a hero for? Spanx. That's right. <laughs> I'm just shocked that there wasn't a Kardashian on the list. Okay? Perhaps the one worse thing than having no heroes is having the wrong heroes. Having the wrong heroes. What does the lifestyle of the person you want to emulate say? What does it speak to? Do you want to be like a person who works hard for a living and has great character? Or you want to be the, the person who just wins the lottery? I'm not talking about outcomes. I'm talking about character. Do you want to be a mother who cares for and raises godly children? Do you look up to those who sacrifice for others? We have reached a point in our day where people would rather be envied than admired. Envied than admired. Historically, people who are great have gotten there because they sought to do good. Not because they started out, I'm going to grow up and be great. No, they're remembered as great because they did good. Scripture says, the righteous despises a vile man, but honors those who fear the Lord. So what David is saying here is that the righteous man with a righteous heart is not attracted to ungodly company. To ungodly company. He isn't attracted to fame or fortune or to the qualities of a person who rejects Christ, but he follows godliness. He follows godly men, godly women. He defends the godly from criticism. Verse 4, in whose eyes the reprobate, that's a vile person, a wicked person, is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. Where is it that you find the company of your friends? Where is it that once you leave this building, who do you want to spend time with? Now, I'm not saying that you've got to make a close friend of every believer out there, because frankly, some of those believers out there are kind of weird, okay? I've got a lot of Presbyterian ministers that I know that I don't want to spend time with because they're just weird, okay? Not that they all want to spend time with me, obviously, okay? <laughs> but, but understand, who do you make your most intimate relationships with? Who do you trust the most, Okay? Do you have your close and intimate relations with those whose ethics are the same as yours? Search your hearts. Who are your role models? Who are the people that you want to be like? And it's not just your companion, who your companions are, but it's also how you treat your companions. Scripture says, do your neighbor no wrong. Do your neighbor no wrong. Well, how do we not do wrong to our neighbor? We obey Scripture. And if Scripture says this is how you treat somebody, then that's how we treat them. How do you treat your enemies? Ooh, well, I don't want to talk about that. Okay? Scripture is very clear about how we are to treat people. He tells us how we may love him, how we may love our neighbors. This is the course of our life. What is good, what is good, how to treat our neighbor good is defined for us in Scripture. So that's the third one, our 
companions. Our fourth one is our commitments. Our commitments. Do we have integrity? Ooh, oh, most of the time. Oh, do we have integrity? Integrity is defined as one who keeps his oath at all times and is faithful even when it hurts. Even when it hurts. Nobody has much trouble keeping a promise when it doesn't cost them anything or when it's to our own advantage. Well, I'll be glad to help you out if it's going to serve me or if it's not going to cost me anything. But how about when conditions change? Does our oath change? Well, I gave my word on this, but you changed the thing so I don't have to keep my word. Hmm. What if your promise suddenly cost you more money than you expected? Well, yeah, I, I said I would help you out, but, but now it's going to be 50 more dollars, and, and I'm just not sure you're worth it. No. If you give your word, you keep it. In verse 4, he swears to his own hurt, he does not change. So really the question comes down to it, can you as a Christian be trusted? When you say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to follow through, I'm going to do these things, is your word valid? Or do you come up with an excuse about why you, well, you, why you couldn't, or why you didn't have the time, or something else came along, something better came along. I can remember we were in North Carolina, and we had arranged for this young lady to babysit the girls. And it's like two minutes before we have to leave, and she's not there. So we call her, and what did we find? She had gotten a better offer, okay, and ditched us and went to the, where the money was. Ugh. Do we keep our words? Do we keep our word to our spouses? Do we keep our word to our children? Do we keep our word to our community? Remember the vows you took on your wedding day. Man, promise to love and, and cherish and honor and all those things. How long? Until death. That's it. When in those vows does it say, as long as it's easy? I remember a buddy of mine, and he was doing a wedding, and they wanted to write their own vows. And he said, well, sure, let me, but let me see them to make sure they're appropriate for church. And they had written, I promise to love you as long as the love shall last. <laughs> I mean, that's a warm fuzzy, but that doesn't mean much, does it? Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean much. Do you honor your promise? Do you honor your promise? Do you do what you say you will do when it comes time for you to do it? We live in a world that is under what, uh, I don't know who said it, but it's, it's so great. It's called the tyranny of the urgent. The tyranny of the urgent. Okay? We have to do what we have to do. And okay, we make plans out here, but you know what? Something else came along, and I had to change. Because what? This was more urgent than what I had promised to do before. See, this psalm gets down into the daily nitty-gritty of our lives, the details of the way that we live. That's why it's telling us that the man who wants to have fellowship with God needs to do these things even if it's uncomfortable for him. He will demonstrate his desire to be with the Lord, his, his faith in the Lord, even if it hurts, even if it's difficult. Even if the circumstances have changed, his word is good. Now, if, you have, if you're somebody that has a skill at excuses, a skill at, at getting out of things, maybe you better check and see. Where is your heart in these things? Does, does the Lord really run your life, and are you seeking to be obedient to what he says? The righteous man, the one who has fellowship with God, the one who is in communion with God, 
can be counted on to do what he says. Why? Think of the character of God. Does God ever go back on his word? Has he ever changed his mind? Did he ever say to somebody, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this for you. Um, uh, no, maybe not. And then change his mind. I'm going to save you. No, you really messed up this week. I'm not going to save you anymore. No, that's not what the Lord does. His character is such that he never breaks his word. An unfaithful person, an unreliable person needs to check their heart before the Lord. Needs to check their relationship before the Lord. Verse 4 says, uh, he who swears his own hurt does not change. The commitments, even in the smallest things, display our belonging to Christ or our alienation from Christ. Think of it from, from this perspective. Jesus said that because he spoke about the same thing when he said, he who is faithful in a little thing will be faithful in much. I, I can remember years ago learning a hard lesson on this because I was supposed to speak and, and there was, you know, I was expecting 60 or 70 people. And, you know, at that time I was getting really geared up and it, because it was 60 people show up, it was going to be really important. So I really prepared and, and there were five. And I just gave a pitiful effort because it was only five. And then I was talking to somebody about my disappointment, my disappointment, that only five got to hear, you know, this. And I really didn't do much. And and they said, you weren't speaking before five. You were speaking before the heavens, before the Lord. And that that changed completely. And my, my mindset about that, you're going to be faithful in a little bit. You'll then be faithful in much. So maybe, not maybe, definitely the Lord was teaching me, Randy, when you learn to be faithful with what I've given you with the five people, then maybe I'll get you an audience of 60. Okay? Proper preparation prevents pitifully poor performance. Okay? You prepare properly for any event. You keep your word. You do the work. Okay? If you're faithful in the little bit, you'll be faithful in the big portion as well. So a lack of integrity is a mark of someone who needs to examine their heart. Are you consistent? Does integrity flow from you in all areas of your life? Let's pray. Lord, these are uh, challenging words to us today. Who are our heroes? Who do we want to be like? Lord, this young private was was someone of character and integrity and saved others. We think of those, Lord, as our heroes, those who willingly laid down their lives for others. We had no greater hero than Christ himself, who, who while we were still his enemies, gave his life for us. And then, Lord, we're challenged. How is it that we keep our word? Are we men and women of integrity? And does that integrity flow from the faith that is within us? Do we do the things that we're supposed to do? Do we keep our word? Do we follow through? Not just so that we look good, but because that's the way that you are. Because you have laid these things down for us and we are to strive after this type of life. 
Fix these things in our hearts, Lord, that we might live in a way that is pleasing to you rather than the world. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.